Well, this is the hardcore, isn't it? This is the remnant. And uh, you've got to be really to stick around for something you're told is a lecture on the Trinity. I mean, really? And you stayed? I'm amazed. Because I think the thing is, most Christians, they think there's the God that we know and love. We love this God. But the Trinity, um, the Trinity is something really to be done in seminary, you know, the ivy-covered seminary. And we'll leave Trinity for those pasty-faced and socially disastrous theologians. And they can deal with Trinity because it's, they enjoy talking about things like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and how can three be one and all that sort of stuff. But it's not relevant to real life, right? And I think, I think deep in the Christian psyche today is the idea that Trinity is this awkward irrelevance, this wart on our knowledge of God. And that tells when you see Christians doing their evangelism. Because when you see Christians doing evangelism, what is it you expect them to say? If, if I hear a Christian telling the gospel, I expect them to talk about the cross, good. I expect them to talk about uh, grace, good. Uh, talk about forgiveness, good. But one thing I really don't expect them to talk about is which God they're talking about, right? I don't expect them to mention Trinity. In fact, I quite expect them to really back off from talking about the Trinity because they're a bit scared, they may get in a tangle, and they're not quite on confident ground. And so what's happening in the church today is we're waxing lyrical about the beauty of the gospel, but not so much about the beauty of the God whose gospel it is. And I think this morning, if there's one thing I want to say, it's that it's time for us to stand up and be proud of who our God is. Not to be shy, to be clear that our beautiful gospel could never come from any lesser God, and that is the triune God. And you know, when, for example, David says, Psalm 27, one thing I've asked the Lord that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. So David's thinking, it's not that I'm in danger. If I press in to try to know God too much, I might come across something boring or odd or distasteful. That's not going to happen. He's confident that you can keep pressing into who God is and he becomes ever more lovely. You're not going to stumble across something and think, oh, so you're not going to stumble across Trinity and think, oh, it's, if you get it, it's going to be beautiful. And that's what we're going to look at now. So where should we start? Now, where do we start with Trinity? I think this is where so many go wrong. And you've probably seen this in a home Bible study group. And the young new Christian says to the Bible study group leader, could you just tell me about this Trinity thing? And you know what the reaction is, right? The Bible study group leader rolls their eyes heavenward and says, ah, the mystery. Okay, that was helpful, thank you. And then someone says, do you know, I've heard this really helpful illustration. It's that God is like a shamrock leaf. 
is like one leaf but with three bits. And I find that really helpful. And someone else then says, no, no, God's like H2O. That he's a bit cold, but then you warm him up and he becomes water, but it's still H2O. And then you warm him up more and he becomes really spiritual and gas. It's all H2O, but there are sort of three different ways in which he can be godish. And someone else said, no, 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 I like to think of God as an egg. You've got the yolk, you've got the white, and you've got the shell, but it's all one egg. <laughs> and do you think, seriously, people are going to bow down in wonder at the eggishness of God? And you think, no wonder Christians think this is just weird. This is just not relevant to everyday life. But Christians believe in the Trinity not because they see, think there's some similarity between God and three-headed giants or streaky bacon. They believe in the Trinity because of Jesus Christ. In John 20, verse 31, you can turn to it if you want. John 20, verse 31 is really John's mission statement, why he wrote his gospel. And in John 20, verse 31, he issues a call to faith in Jesus. And he says this. He says, I've written these things, I've written this gospel, so that you may believe that, listen, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, do you hear what he's just done there? It's a simple call to faith in Jesus, but that call to faith in Jesus is a call to a faith in a triune God. You spot it? Jesus is the Son of God. God is his Father. But he's clearly God himself, he is the Lord. My Lord, my God, says Thomas, but God is his father and he's the Christ, which means, or Messiah in Hebrew, means he's the one anointed, the one anointed with the spirit. You see, when, when you start with the Jesus of the Bible, it's a triune God that you get. Looking at the Trinity is, is not going off into some little irrelevance. It's pressing in to know who Jesus is. Or, let's think about it this way. Have you ever asked the question, what was God doing before he created the world? Ever wondered that one? In fact, theologians have come up with a nice answer to this one. What was God doing? Well, the more pompous ones, anyway. have come up with a nice answer to this one. What was God doing before he created the world? He was inventing hell for those cheeky enough to ask such questions. <laughs> theologians like doing that sort of thing. But in fact, we're told exactly what God was doing before creation. John 17, verse 24. Given a window straight in. John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. That's what God was doing. For eternity, God was a father loving his son in the power of the Spirit. That's the God we're talking about. Now, what is it to be a father? A father is a name filled with meaning. A father is one who gives life, who loves, who begets. 
And if then God was eternally a father, eternally he's loving. Eternally he's life-giving, outgoing. And so would you come with me to 1 John 4? 1 John 4, and let's read a couple of famous verses. 1 John 4 from verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Listen to this. Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Incredibly powerful verse. Do you know a mature, older Christian who maybe you're going to go and have lunch with them today, I hope you are, and they're so lovely, they've walked with the Lord for years, and they're so lovely that you find when you're with them, you're just nicer, right? You behave more nicely around them. And, and it's not like you're faking it, but genuinely you find they're just so kind and they're, they're not saying bad words behind people's backs and they're just so generous and lovely. And you find yourself starting to be nicer in their presence. I mean, you change when you walk away, but just being with them makes you nicer. And it's, it's a small little image of what God is like. You cannot know this God. He is love in such a profound and potent way that to even slightly know him, you must start loving. For he is love. But who precisely is John talking about here? Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his only son. See, he's talking about God the Father here. One who sends his son. You see, this God would not be who he was if he did not love. If at any time the father didn't have a son who he loved, he simply wouldn't be a father. So father means to love. It means to give out life, to beget the son. And so you begin seeing why the Trinity is such good news. God is love because God is Trinity. You get a picture of this in the baptism of Jesus. And this is something where particularly parents with young kids, if you try to teach your children, here's the illustration to use, not eggs and shamrock leaves. Here's the illustration to use, the baptism of Jesus. See, in the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, what do we see? The father declares his love for his son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And what have I missed out? The Spirit was hovering on him, resting on him. For it is the Spirit who makes the love of the Father known to the Son. That's the God we're talking about. A Father loving his Son as he pours out the Spirit of his blessing on him. And that love that the Father pours out on the Son causes the Son to respond with a, an echoing love. And so there's this lovely moment in Luke 10 where we read Jesus, full of joy in the Holy Spirit, cried, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Because the Father's love caused him to echo love back. I hope you get to see it. It means when you start with Jesus, the triune God that he makes known isn't 
a weird philosophical headache. Here is a God who is love, a father loving, giving life to his son in the fellowship of the spirit. And all this means the triune God is utterly different to all other gods. You see, let's think about it this way. Imagine, imagine a single person God. Okay, so before he creates, single person God sitting on his throne, what's he like? What's his character like? Single person God, before he's created, what's he like? And you could say, well, how do I know? How possibly could I know what he's like? But there is one thing you do know. Anyone got it? What's, what's he like, this single person God? He's alone. He's lonely. Therefore, love for others cannot be his heartbeat, right? Because he's never loved anything in eternity. So a single person God, you cannot say this God is love. You could say he starts behaving in a loving way, but you cannot say of that God he is love because for eternity he wasn't. Only of the triune God can you say this God is love. And it's interesting then to see all the gods of human religion are needy. You ask, why did these gods create, for instance? Why did these gods create? Well, we're told, for example, in some of the earliest creation myths from Babylon, the god Marduk, for instance, says he wants to create humanity so that he might have slaves. Right? Why do you create? So I can get a workforce. So all the gods of these single gods of human religion, they create because either they want slaves or they want friends. So they may come across as very powerful, but actually they're needy. They need us, right? Because they're eternally lonely. And so the glory of such gods is like a black hole. Whereas the triune God doesn't need us. And by the way, that is great good news because that can immediately strike us going, oh, I sort of wanted God to need me. But it's great that he doesn't need us because it means he relates to you by pure grace. Not because he needs you, not because he's leaning on you, desperately wanting you to be his friend. It's pure grace, pure kindness. The Father has never been lonely. For eternity, he's been satisfied in knowing his Son. And so his glory, as we saw this morning, is like radiant light ever shining out because he's so full. He's not empty trying to take. He's so full giving. I wonder if you've read um, C.S. Lewis' The Screwtape Letters. Um, the Screwtape Letters, if you're not... If, Read them, they're great, you'll love them. And I'm not just saying that because Lewis was from Oxford. But if you're not going to read them, you can get an audio book of them, which, which can be great to hear. The Screwtape Letters are supposedly the letters from a senior devil to a junior devil, giving good devilish advice on how to tempt well. And Lewis captures the difference between the devil, who is the definitive, needy, solitary God, and the living God of 
overflowing love. So here's what the senior demon writes to the junior demon. Ready? Screwtape writes, one must face the fact that all God's talk about his love for men, his service being perfect freedom, is not, as we devils would gladly believe, mere propaganda. It is an appalling truth. God really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he's absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We demons want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become children. We want to suck in. God wants to give out. We demons are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. See the difference? Let me show you a direct contrast so it can bring this out. I want to show you the difference between a triune God and the best known single person God on the planet, Allah. And so you can see the difference because of... John Calvin once said that the difference between the living God and all other gods is the fact that he's triune. I want you to see that difference now. So I hope this is okay. This probably hasn't been done here in this building for a while. I'm going to read some of the Quran to you. I'm going to read you two verses from the Quran. And I'm going to apologize for this because some of this to a Christian would be is quite offensive. Say not, Trinity, desist, it will be better for you, for God is one God. And here's the bit that is uncomfortable to read. Glory be to him, far exalted is he above having a son. Next verse. Say he, Allah, is one. Allah is he on whom all depend. He begets not, nor is he begotten, and none is like him. Now, did you hear that key line? He begets not, e.g. he's not a father, nor is he begotten, he's not a son. Allah's making it as clear as he possibly can in the Quran, I am not the God of the Bible. I'm not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, so, okay, Allah is one person, not three, but that difference means he has a totally different character and motivation. I want to think about it this way. I've prompted you, primed you on this already, so you should know. What is Allah like before creation? He's alone. And so, love for others is not his heartbeat, right? And actually, there's a tension here at this point in Islam, because Allah is said to have 99 names which describe him as he is in himself in eternity. One of those names could be translated the loving. But you think, well, how could he be loving if he's on his own for eternity with nothing to love? And there are two main answers that theologians have tried to give to this one. One is that, well, he eternally loves his Quran, which is an eternal word in heaven. You think, well, that's not really love, is it? It's more like a hobby. It's loving an object, 
right? It's an interest, it's not a relationship. The other option is, this is a more popular option, Allah eternally looks forward to his creation before he creates. He looks forward to it and he loves his creation in advance. That sounds a good answer, doesn't it? Actually, it's hugely problematic because if that's why Allah's called the loving, Allah needs creation to be who he is, the loving. Oops. And one of the cardinal tenets of Islam is that Allah depends on nothing. It's just one of the points where Islam, as any non-Trinitarian system must be, is internally incoherent. It can't work unless it's Trinitarian. It won't work. But here's what I want to draw out. The implications for the character of Allah are disturbing because he's not essentially loving. Because he's not essentially loving, Allah is the source of evil just as much in the same way as he's the source of good. And so while some of his better known names are the compassionate, the merciful, he has other names, the proud, the deceiver, in fact, the best of deceivers, he's called. Um, he said to deceive and pervert the will of men about 20 times in the Quran. And what do you think faith in such a God looks like? It's going to look scared, unsure, right? And so, let me tell you a story about Muhammad's successor, the enormously significant Caliph Abu Bakr. Now, Muhammad, when he was still alive, he assured Abu Bakr of a place in paradise. You think, nice. Uh, that, so that's like the Islamic equivalent of Philippians 4. Do you remember Philippians 4? Where Paul writes about Clement and those other workers whose names are written in the book of life. And you think, Clement's not going to struggle with assurance, is he? You know, where are you going, Clement, when you die? Philippians 4, read it. So, he, so Clement could be very assured. Abu Bakr was asked, what about this promise from Muhammad that you would be in paradise? And Abu Bakr responded, by Allah, I would not feel safe from the deceptions of Allah even if I had one foot in paradise. Let me stress, I'm not meaning in the slightest to be rude or derogatory. I'm quoting the words of the first caliph of, of Islam. He realized Allah cannot be trusted because he's not loving, essentially. But how different it is with a triune God, because and only because eternally the Father's loving the Son in the fellowship of the Spirit. Only because God is like that can we say God is love. Therefore, he speaks the truth. Therefore, we can trust him. Therefore, when he makes great promises, we can rely on them. And I think there's a great challenge for us there that we must be resolutely Trinitarian. And I want to show very briefly what that does to the gospel. I, I once, a few years ago, made a great mistake in I was about to try to edit a book comparing um, Christianity and Islam on different things. And it was a disaster and didn't work, so I never did it. But I wanted to compare salvation in, this is one of the reasons why it didn't work. I wanted to compare salvation in Islam and Christianity. 
So I spoke to an Islamic scholar who would be the guy who'd be writing it. And he said, the problem is there isn't a word for salvation in Islam. The closest he could think of was success. Isn't that revealing? The triune God, ever-loving, full of grace, offers salvation for free. Allah requires success. See the difference? But, friends, there would be no salvation if God were not triune. Let me just give you one example of why that is, the cross. Without the Trinity, the cross does not work. Why? Well, if the Father did not have a Son to send to be our substitute, well, if our sins are to be paid for, we have to have a perfect man die in our place. But if God did not provide him, we have to provide the perfect man, right? And if we have to provide the perfect man, God's not being gracious at all. He's not done anything. And also, it's not possible because we can't provide a perfect man. See? It's only because the Father has a son to send to die in our place that God can do all of salvation himself and accomplish it. So there's nothing for us to do. But actually, there's far more than this, um, the Trinity. The Trinity helps us to see the full sweetness of the gospel. Before I show you how, let, let me, I'm going to tell you a gospel and have a think what you make of this one. So this is, I'm going to tell you a gospel. All right, I'm phrasing it carefully. God is like a heavenly school principal. And we've all been caught being naughty in the classroom. So we've broken the rules, so we're due to be punished by the headmaster, by the school principal. But along comes a nice classmate called Jesus, and he takes the punishment for us so we can go off and have a clean school record. Does that sound familiar as a sort of gospel explanation? It should sound sort of familiar because there's a lot there that's tracing the lines of the gospel. But I never talked about the Trinity there, did I? And did you notice all my explanation of the gospel flowed out of how I defined God? I said, God is like a school principal. Everything flowed out of that. Who you think God is, is going to shape the gospel entirely. So my question is, what if saying before God ever ruled, before he ever ruled over creation, what was he like eternally? What if before all things God was a father loving his son? What would the gospel look like then? Because who God is shapes the salvation he has to offer. Come with me to Romans 8 to see this. Romans 8, if you can, if you have the text available. And I want you to see how Trinitarian this is. Um, I'm going to just dive in at Romans 8 verse 14. Um, now, I've got the ESV here. Um, some translations 
the word children is used here, but literally it, it does say sons. And I want the ladies to be listening especially attentively here because this is outrageous. Ready? Romans 8 verse 14. All, ladies, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Oh, come on. It's so misogynistic, isn't it? It's, it's how it sounds to us. But while elsewhere in Scripture we do see the more generic term, children of God, Paul is deliberately saying that all who are led by the Spirit of God, men and women, are sons of God. Because he wants us to be clear that the status we're all given is quite specifically the status of the son himself. That's what we're given in the gospel. More than forgiven, we're adopted as sons in the son. Now, now ladies, men have to make peace with being part of the bride of Christ, so we've all got issues here. <laughs> so men are part of the bride of Christ, and the women get to enjoy the status of the son. And the reason that's important is because it's so easy for us to think, well, God the Father loves his son. Of course he does. And then there are the children of God who he's not so keen on, right? And so Paul wants us to be absolutely clear. No, 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 no. All believers, men and women, mature and immature, are given the status of the beloved son himself. So much so, in fact, that do you see verse 15, he goes on, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you notice how strange again that was? So he was outrageous in verse 14. And verse 15, in the middle of this complete Letter that's written in Greek, he inserts this one word in Aramaic, Abba. It's a really odd thing to do. Why use that Aramaic word? Because he's harking back to Mark 14, where, here's the important point, in private, Jesus speaks to his father and says, Abba, Father. That is in private what he calls him. And Paul is saying the spirit of adoption or the spirit of sonship, the spirit of the son, he's called in Galatians 4.4, is given to us so that we might share the language that the son shares with his father. We're given precisely nothing less than what the son himself has. Now that is a transforming gospel. But you only get that with the triune God. You only get that. Now, if God was not a father, he couldn't give us the right to be his children. If he didn't enjoy eternal fellowship with his son, if his son was just a created being who ne never had warm, close, eternal fellowship with his father, you have to wonder, does God know what fellowship is? Does he have fellowship to share with us? If the son was 
a creature, what sort of relationship could he share with us? If God was a single person, if God has no son, salvation would look entirely different. If God was a single person, school principal, possibly he might offer salvation where we could live under his rules under his protection. He might even offer forgiveness, but he couldn't offer closeness. Only the triune God can do that, bringing us into the life of the Father and the Son. And if God was just a single person, not eternally love, not knowing eternally what fellowship is, not having love as his heartbeat, you could never hear those golden words of John 17, 23. Jesus said, Father, you loved them even as you loved me. With no other religion do you get that. Father, you've loved them even as you've loved me. With this God, we can say with all sincerity, our Father because of Jesus. And it means a salvation that is by grace from first to last. You see, I think we often talk about our problem being this, that God's standards are high and our standards aren't high enough. And that's true. But you know what we're like. We tend to go, if God's standards are high, maybe I'll just try a bit harder. But if salvation is adoption, Trying harder is just simply a wrong category. It's a category mistake. Because you can't buy your way into a family. Right? You can't buy your way in. Salvation is adoption. And there's no way you can earn it. It has to be free. It has to be a gift. And it's interesting as you look at the difference between the triune God and all other religions, only the triune God offers salvation perfectly for free. It makes sense, doesn't it? Because he's eternally loving, inclined to be merciful, and because salvation is adoption. It's a free thing. It's about love. It's not about business. Whereas with other gods not eternally loving, salvation, if you can talk about salvation, is more about business. It's a contract. You've got to do your part. No, with this God, God's blessing is sonship. And effort can have nothing to do with it. Your efforts can make you a slave, but no amount of effort can make you a son. And that is right at the heart of the Christian battle, getting that salvation is completely free. So how does the Trinity shape the gospel? The Trinity makes the gospel. The Trinity makes salvation possible and makes salvation sweet. And just briefly on the nature of this salvation, what is it that we're brought in to enjoy as children of God? Well, the Son has eternally been loved by the Father. Father, John 17, 24, you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's what it's like to be the Son. And eternally he's echoed love back to the Father. That, friends, is the life we're brought into.
totally different to what any other god offers. Other gods say, for example, Allah, be my slave, be my good slave. This God, what he offers is, come. Come be my children, my sons in the sun, and share my life, share my eternal pleasure. And his life is all about the Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father in the sweet fellowship of the Spirit. And it means, friends, if you would be godly, you must love Jesus because that's what the Father's like. You'll never be more godly than when you love Jesus because that's what God is like. And you'll never be more Christ-like than when you love the Father for that's what he's like. Nothing makes us more like God than our love for the Son and for the Father as the Spirit enables us. This Trinity makes the difference in everything. Not a philosophical headache, but a God who makes a beautiful salvation and makes a life where the possibility of harmony and beauty is held out. Would you turn to, with me to Ephesians? I'm just going to read you a little bit on this. Ephesians 2. I've been mean, talking so far about how God reconciles him to himself, uh, re reconciles us to himself. But Ephesians 2, uh, let's, let's dive in at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Now, so what he's getting at there is that the Father sends the Son not only to reconcile us to himself, but also to reconcile us to each other. Because this God is eternally a harmony. Father loving Son, Son loving the Father in the fellowship of the Spirit. And so he creates a world where harmony reflects who he is. And contrast this, for example, with the march of Islam around the Mediterranean in its first couple of hundred years or so. What happens is the once diverse cultures from Persia to Morocco become uniform. So could you tell the difference between a Libyan culture and a Iranian culture? It's hard to now because the cultures have been, become monochrome. Because for Allah, single person, sameness is good. For the triune God, harmony is good. Different persons working together in harmony is good. And so, friends, the Trinity is the hope for world peace. Only with the Trinity do you have the logic 
for bringing together what we see in Ephesians 2, Jew and Gentile, men and women, black and white, coming together in one family. All together, crying, salvation belongs to our God, Abba, Father. Only the Trinity provides a logic for that world harmony. A beautiful God, a great salvation, and a hopeful world peace.